0: This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX's The Bear. All episodes now streaming, only on Hulu.
1: This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up,
0: foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF
1: at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode A valuable source of inspiration and insight. My guest today on One for the Road is an author, a podcast host, ex pint stealer, and fizzy water warrior. Please welcome Vic Van Stone, aka Drunk Mummy, Sober Mummy. So welcome, Rick, all the way from Australia. I've got up quite early this morning to um, have you on my show, One for the Road. And I will have to say that um, bird song is absolutely beautiful this time of day, but there's a particular bird in the trees that I'm nervous about because it's very loud. And uh, yeah, don't it worry. Made, it's made an appearance before on uh, my podcast with my wife, M, where it It just pops up every now and again and goes.
0: Don't uh, worry, Dave. You're talking to me in Australia. There's all sorts of creepy crawlies and birds and snakes all creeping around. So if you hear something this end, it will be some weird animal.
1: So how are you? Are you right?
0: Yeah, I'm great. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm good, thank you.
0: Thank you for getting up so early.
1: No, no, I'm up. I'm, you know, when you don't drink, you um, you're yeah. up and awake early anyway. You like to see the day in. So, yeah, I thought we could get straight in, actually. And I, I like to go straight back to the childhood and, and what it was like for you growing up. And you grew up in the UK, didn't you?
0: Yeah, I'm from Reading originally. I'm from a little village outside Reading, Um, I grew up, you know, in a family where I felt very loved, where I was the youngest of four kids, yeah, in a little sleepy village. And one of the things that I always wanted to be involved in from a very, very young age was drinking. So it was kind of I was born to drink, I feel like I never really had a choice um, I was born into a family who were huge parties, you know the life and soul of the party, a very frivolous style of drinking that was never you know for commiserating, it was always a celebratory type of drinking. So it wasn't something that I considered not doing at any point in my life and well, until recently. So yeah, I grew up and i had I always wanted to join in the party. that was my aim. I started very, very young sort of stealing wines out of the garage, bottles of wine and then stealing beers and whatever I could get my hands on and necking it down the wreck, like the little recreation ground down the road. And I was always the instigator, Dave. Do you know what I mean? I was always the one with the bottle of wine, the packet of fags, like trying to get all my spotty little mates to have a swig. I loved drinking because it made me feel like part of my family. Um, it's a terrible thing to say, but I felt accepted in most ways in my family. But I felt like if I didn't drink, then therefore I might be rejected in some way. Because we weren't problem drinkers, I guess it wasn't considered a type of drinking to be toxic. So you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was surrounded by alcohol most of the time. It was piled up in the garage, or we were going over to France in the car with the exhaust dragging along the road on the way back. You know, because we'd filled the car up and. It was very boozy lifestyle. But as I said, I never, ever felt unloved. My parents are amazing. You know, they're the hosts with the most and they, you know, my mum can whip up a party at the drop of a hat. And I was always wanting to be like her. There was always these amazing sort of glamorous looking women wandering around the house with a, you know, bottle of baby sham or my dad's mates all standing watching the football and with a glass of whiskey with ice kind of clinking around in the glass. It was all very romantic to me. I never saw the dark side. I mean, I was probably tucked up in bed with my Mr. Men books by the time people were puking into the punch bowl. So I never saw the dark side of it, Dave.
1: It's interesting what you say there, you know, like that you, you felt like you was born to drink there. Because you say you never saw the dark side, but it does seem quite romanticised uh, and it never seemed toxic as well because you probably didn't know what that meant at that age. And your parents were laughing and it, it was all a big fun party thing. And it yeah, and it just goes to show that when you're young and you grow up around alcohol, how that can influence your impression of it
0: yeah they're my peers they're the people I looked up to they're the people I was learning from and they didn't know that of course I don't think my parents would have had a sip of alcohol in front of me if they ever thought I was going to abuse it in any way so I have no blame there it was always I think it's always Personal choice. It was just that I wanted to join in. It was going to be my way of of having an identity growing up. So of course that's what I did, and that just continued throughout my teenage years. You know, I was passed out in a farmer's field in a cider coma for most of my teens. It made me feel confident with boys. I mean, I remember all the other girls were like snogging boys behind the bike sheds, and I just didn't feel ready for any of that. I just didn't feel, you know, that I was. I wanted that side of things at that age. So I was sort of 13 and 14. But of course, when I had a couple of beers, I became, you know, accessible to boys. So I could chat with them and I could I could snog them behind the bike sheds. So it started, I started to use alcohol, I guess, in my teens as a way of me fitting in, which is a pattern I copied throughout my life. I wanted people to like me. I was a real people pleaser. So that was how I was going to do it, was to, to be the one who always had the drink And actually, who always had the drugs later on in life. You know, I was the party girl. I was thinking about that term party girl, actually. I wonder whether party girl is actually just an addict with backstage passes. I think that's uh a... a party girl I used to think of a sort of frivolous thing oh yeah I'm just a party girl but actually maybe party girl isn't the best label because it just means it's someone who's probably completely off their head a lot of the time and getting away with it and not getting help which which is what I did so it just went on and on I moved to Brighton I went to uni I was there for a couple of months and you know, I, I just learned how to down and pine a snake bite and black quicker than anybody else. I'm your classic, you know, classic binge drinker that never looked outside of the bubble. But a few, few things happened throughout my life, Dave. There was a few instances. I mean, I've had wake-up calls throughout my life that I chose to ignore because I couldn't identify with me if I wasn't a huge binge drinker. There was a little thing that happened at school when I was 14. I had two best friends and one day I came back from holiday and they decided that they didn't like me anymore. It sounds really minor, but I think trauma is relative. And for me at the time, that situation totally broke my heart. So I ended up being the popular girl at school, you know, the one that was always like the class joker to being sat on my own in the canteen at lunchtime, feeling very sorry for myself. And I just remember my bus journeys to school at that age. I just didn't want to go. I had to go and finish my GCSEs. But I was extremely um, sad because I felt very, very alone. And of course, the only way I've ever dealt with emotions is to drink. So all of these little things that happened through my life, I mean, I say little, but for me, that was huge. Things like that led me just to deal with my emotions by blocking them out, by numbing them out, and pouring more and more alcohol down my neck. And as I said, that led to recreational drug use when I moved to Brighton. I suppose just one thing led to leads to the other. I I was doing cocaine, and I was you know in that big party scene. It was the time when Fat Boy Slim, you know, was started the Big Beat Boutique, and I was kind of part of that scene and I felt really cool and trendy but in fact I was just totally off my head for years um, and just about getting away with it. I had a situation where I sort of overdosed on ecstasy which I didn't know that anybody else had ever done that at the time and ended up having to move back in with my parents. It was all caused because of my drinking. When I drank I sort of lost control of my inhibitions. Therefore, I was kind of doing whatever was handed to me. I had no self-control and I didn't really care about myself. Obviously, I can see that now in hindsight. And it's sad to look back at that girl because she was really, really off the rails. But there was no self-care there, Dave. It was quite frightening.
1: Yeah, it sounds a lot like me, actually. Um, I was incredibly insecure when I was growing up. In myself you know my mum and dad gave me a great upbringing but they weren't good at expressing love so they would never say to me oh I'm really proud of you I love you Dave come here give me a hug but they would be very practical and make me safe that way and then um, we moved area when I was 13 and that was quite um, really really unsettling for me you know Uh, So I had to start my new secondary school in the second year. And it was quite a rough school. And I remember I was a bit green behind the gills, you know. And I walked into this class and there's all these big old lumps in there staring at me. And um, I remember there was a time I was at home and there was a knock on the door. And there were three of them saying, is Dave coming out? Is Dave, you know, and I was petrified. I was almost hiding behind a sofa. But then things changed at home. I decided maybe that's what I needed to do. And they, of course, were up the shops drinking cider and whatever. So I started one. And that gave me incredible confidence then. And then, as you said earlier, you felt like you you, you were accepted and you fitted in. And that's what that gave to me. And then I become one of the gang. Mm-hmm. And, of course, smoking, drinking, staying out till two in the morning, going to school, hungover, you know, and it was... But I felt accepted, so I could really relate to what you said then.
0: Yeah, it's funny you talking about those little transitions, those tiny little things that build up, you know, you moving and and all these tiny things that feel... Quite insignificant at the time. They just kind of make that little hole in your heart sort of open up a little bit more, don't they? I mean, that was the same for me. I went to a really posh private school for a while, just for a couple of years. I really didn't fit in there. I had to wear a straw boater and they measured the length of my skirt and I had to fall over like a proper lady. I mean, it just wasn't my cup of tea at all. And then I went to a really rough comprehensive where I was pretty much the only girl in my year that wasn't up the duff. So it's like completely two different worlds. And I did exactly the same thing. I mean, I started started swearing more. I tried to be a bit more street and I started drinking more. And it's just about me trying to prove myself and trying to fit in, never thinking that just being myself was good enough. And that is something that has continued until really I was 40. So yeah, I, I ended up moving home after I had kind of a bit of a drug Thing. But I remember after I had sort of overdosed on ecstasy that time when I I moved home and it was all a bit weird because I had to tell my parents what I'd done and I was like yes I'm burning the candle at both ends and I I need to come home and I remember my goal my my get better goal when I was really I was really suffering mentally with anxiety and with agoraphobia and with all sorts of terrible emotions whereas literally I had to stay at my parents' house for about a year and all I could think of is the day I get better is the day that I'm sitting in a pub with a pint. So my get better goal when I was really extremely unwell was to drink Mm. because that was me saying, look, here I am. I'm back. I'm back from this mental torment. I'm back to being Vic again. I'm back in the pub. And that's what I did. It's exactly what I did. I went on, I ended up getting a bit of cognitive behavioral therapy at that age. I was about 23, which really helped me and made me feel much better. And I took some antidepressants because obviously staying with your parents for a year when you're 23 isn't isn't the best thing. But my goal was to start drinking again. And as soon as I felt better, I started drinking again. And actually I booked a ticket around the world because I just didn't want to be part of that whole, you know, the idea of people wanting me to do things, wanting me to do certain jobs or wanting me to study this or study that. It was just too much. I'd actually been done for drink driving as well when I was 18, which I'm terribly not proud of. But all of those things were just stories that added to my huge repertoire of, you know, tumultuous tales, which I used in the pub to entertain people. Even the drink driving story, which I'm very ashamed about. You know, everything was part of this persona that I was creating for myself. And that kind of led to... Another wake-up call. when I was living in Thailand, was on the Millennium Night. I got really, really drunk with all of my friends. I can't really remember anything after midnight. But the last thing I remember on that night was picking up a firework and lighting it and blowing my finger off. You can see, Dave, my little stumpy finger. So you know, all of these things were happening, but I was really choosing to ignore them. They were big things. They weren't tiny little things of me tripping over and cutting my chin or something, which did happen every Friday night after failed swan dives. But I chose to ignore everything because I could not identify anybody beyond alcohol. Scary, really.
1: Let's go back a bit. So when you said you booked around a world ticket, when you did that, did you think, right, I'm going to have a year out now? And did you think, you know, I can have a year on the lash without a lot of responsibility, really?
0: Yeah, well, pretty much. I know I wasn't the sort of person who was going to just go into a career. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And there's a lot of pressure around that age, around that, you know, I'd failed at university. I'd had to leave. Actually, that's a funny story. I, I was at a party and a girl came up to me that I'd never met before and said, oh, I said, oh, hello, I'm Vic. She went, oh, yeah, I know you you're Vic that gets really drunk and takes loads of drugs, aren't you? So I'd only been there about three months and I'd created a reputation for myself. And I left university the next day. Yeah. And I went traveling and traveling for me, it was just like saying goodbye to everybody. Goodbye to responsibility. I can do this on my own and go and have a laugh and have no one on my back. And I don't have to deal with any of these problems because I think deep down, I knew I had a drink problem, but I could not see out of that so I just carried on. And of course traveling is an amazing excuse to get pissed somewhere and make a tit out of yourself and then move on to the next destination with no repercussions. And promiscuity, I you know I was I remember being my drunkenness was represented by each bottle on the table an empty bottle, you know, my standards lowering to each man that I went home with. I remember the saying, I think it's a Jack Couriak saying, it wasn't my frontal lobotomy, it was the bottle in front of me. And I had too many bottles in front of me all the time, which led to me being led down dark alleys by strange men and waking up on my own in a room where I didn't know where I was, you know, holding some sheets up to my chin, just feeling like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. And why is there this man here that I don't know? And why am I doing this to myself? I mean, it breaks my heart now to think about it, Dave, how much risk I put myself in. It's frightening. There's so many situations where I could have been raped or killed. It was crazy. It was was just crazy behaviour, but it was the alcohol that was causing it. It wasn't, I didn't feel like it was me. I couldn't take responsibility for it, but I didn't know else another way of interacting with people.
1: Yeah, it's scary. I mean, to have an overdose on ecstasy, to waking up in a stranger's bed in a foreign country, and people listening who've got a uh, problem with alcohol or drugs, they know that you lose all sort of reality, don't you? You just go with the wind. and But for a woman in a different country to do that, and almost the next day, I wouldn't say you brag about it, but you laugh it off, don't you? Because Deep down, you kind of know what the truth is. But you and then the next night you do the same. It's almost like a real self-sabotage, isn't it? Of you, you know, don't have any self-respect, do we?
0: No, I remember I resonated with Glenn in Glenn Doyle's book um, that she talked about abandoning yourself. I mean, that is exactly what I was doing. It was like I'd left my soul in the hotel room and then I'd go out. And then there was this this completely different person that was this wild, free spirit, which is, I guess, how I describe myself, was in fact, I was an alcoholic. (laughs) And I used to say, oh, yeah, I'm free and independent. But actually, no, I'm going out, I'm being free and independent because I have a problem with alcohol and I'm trying to I'm trying to blend it into the culture that I'm you know surrounding myself in. It was all about environments. I always blamed environments and culture and this and that because I put myself in places where my drinking went unnoticed. I surrounded myself with people who were doing the same thing and I could get the party started wherever I was. I mean, all I needed was a bottle of Jack Daniels and some fairy lights, and I could make a party on a pile of mud. It didn't make any difference. So I was always creating these environments around me it was like a safety net so no one could literally pull me up and say you've got a drink problem you need to sort it out so of course they never did well, I was going to tell you actually this um this week I cleaned out my shed with my husband here in Australia. And I found a diary from 2007, which is exactly the time we're talking about now. And I just flipped open a page and I've written it down here, what it says. I wanted to read it to you. So this is 2007 when my drinking was very, very frivolous. I, I was questioning it every time I was hungover, but I was just continuing the pattern. So this is the 11th of February, 2007. That is my 30th birthday. It says, I believe I have a chemical imbalance in my brain. And the scale gets tipped every time I drink. I want to go to AA. I hate myself for not being able to stop. The penalties in my body are too much. I just want to drink normally. Every effect is negative. And then it says in big letters, stop people pleasing. And it goes on and on. And I was really surprised by this diary because I thought these wake up calls, I didn't really think I was suffering until I had the children later on. But I look at these diaries. I couldn't I couldn't actually believe it. This struggle has been going on for years and years and years. And I've chosen to ignore it because I was almost embarrassed of being sort of excommunicated from my family or or told that I was boring because obviously I thought sober people were the most boring people in the world. And then there's a note next to this diary entry, which I was so shocked by because I didn't know that I was interested in sobriety, but it says, note, concentrate on the sober me, do not rely on the drink to have fun. And that's 2007. So it just shows you there is a struggle there that you laugh over in public, but the private struggle is real And I never, ever told a soul.
1: Yeah, I I often say as well that, you know, um, for many, including myself, it was like I felt like I was on a desert island, but I put myself on that island. you know what I mean? Because I couldn't face it myself. I knew there was a struggle. I knew there was a problem. I think a lot of us who drink are people pleasers. And that comes from a deep insecurity on my part. And I, I think once you start, To write things down like that, or or sometimes look in the mirror. I've I've talked to myself before and said, "What are you doing? You know, you wear wear the outfit of the big funny man, me, Mm. that is not (laughs) you. You know, I've worn that
0: outfit (laughs) before.
1: Yeah, you walk into the pub and everyone, you know, a lot of people now know that I was nicknamed Glugs because I could drink really, really quickly. And yeah, and I was the
0: I was the gulper, Dave gulper yeah <laughs> that was me yeah. the gulper all right the gulper's here
1: well yeah I mean I can relate to that because like um, my it used to be turmoil for my wife when I would pour a glass of wine because I would get the biggest glass and it would go and then I would just drink it down in about two minutes and then and it used to drive her mad and now I don't drink I can understand why yeah
0: I mean, it wasn't, uh, I was never fond of a good vintage. It was never, I was never a sort of sommelier in that sense. Mm. I was drinking to get pissed. I wasn't drinking because I liked the taste or, you know, I had that feeling of, yeah, I'd, I would get excited about a drink, but that was kind of in my head. I, I just wanted to, to to know that I had a drink near me that I could, that I could consume as quickly as possible to get the feeling. It was never about the taste or the, you know, the vintage. It's really confusing at that age because you want to still be part of this, you know, your social life and what everybody else is doing around you. But I was always the drunkest person in the room without fail I was always the one falling over, dribbling at the bar, looking like a complete mess. But it took me a long time to realise that. I mean, I'm writing about the struggle, obviously, but I, I never reached out. I never said, look, I need help. I think the only time I ever reached out was someone was kind of picking me up out of a gutter. So I just couldn't see it so hard.
1: So what changed for you then? You know, At what part of your drinking did things change?
0: So when I was thirty four, I'd I'd actually met someone, um, an old friend from uni, from my crazy days at uni, and he was the first person. My husband John, he was the first person who liked me for me. I had never experienced that before. I thought people liked me because I was funny and because I was a good drinker and a good partier and all of these other things, but he really made it clear that you know he did he didn't care about those things and for me I think something changed in me the day I met re-met him we hadn't seen each other for 17 years and we were engaged within six weeks we we identified something in each other that was you know couldn't ignore um and that was it it was just a kind of acceptance of each other and it was a very new feeling for me and it it, you know I felt years and years of turmoil suddenly got sort of it squeezed out of me because I didn't have to pretend to be somebody else anymore. And it was really satisfying. And I got pregnant very, very quickly. And my wedding day was actually my first ever sober social event. I was three months pregnant at my wedding after doing a pregnancy test, hung over, of course, the, the night of my Hindu, I ended up getting chucked out of a nightclub for dropping a tray of shots on the floor. And I ended up wedged between a bed and a cupboard. <laughs> like a doorstop for about five hours because I couldn't move anyway I was wasted woke up the next day did a pregnancy test so I was pregnant when I you know and drinking which I didn't know about but I stopped straight away as soon as I saw those two blue lines appear on that test that was it for me and that just shows this sort of drinking you know even though I was struggling like in that diary entry I could just stop I could stop and that was really fascinating for me. I was like, right, I've got a life growing inside me. So therefore I need to sort my shit out. And I did, I sorted it out. But I think an inkling of me knew that as soon as that baby had popped out, I was going back on the raz. My plan was always to be this rock star mum. I never thought I was going to be the sort of mum that was sort of excreting blissfuls in time for snack time and having paleo snacks on demand. I knew I wasn't going to be that. But my plan was to be this rock star travelling mum that was going to stuff a baby in a sling, be booking a ticket around the world and be having a beer in one hand and a packet of wet wipes in the other. There was no consideration. I never, ever considered stopping drinking forever after I had children. So the party continued. And, you know, the gaps between my drinking got a bit longer, but they sort of accentuated my indulgence, Dave. So like the build-up was huge. So six weeks after my son was born, you know, I'm at home. I've gone from being a party girl to being a stay-at-home mum. And that transition for me was really, really hard.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard many people say that their drinking's ramped up when they have children because of the stress, because you're not socialising anymore. Uh, And, you know, that encourages the the wine o'clock. And we've certainly witnessed that since we've been in lockdown as well. You know, I'm getting more and more inquiries saying, you know, my drinking started at one o'clock. And um, as we both know, um, when you start drinking at home, certainly for me, that's when my drinking really, really changed. It, it stopped being social to becoming quite isolated as well.
0: Yeah, I, I was never an at home drinker. I was always a drinker because I was hiding it amongst the crowd. It was sort of absorbed into the crowd and diluted by the people around me. So therefore, I never stuck out like a sore thumb. I just stuck out as somebody who was a sort of good time girl. And it's crazy that mummy wine culture and everything. I mean, women at that stage in their life are so vulnerable. You know, you've you've been through a huge trauma. Births are not an easy thing to go through. And you, then you're given loads of opiates afterwards, which you're not used to having, which causes this kind of... You can't, you're you on a come down, basically, the week after you've had a baby. They call it the baby blues, but I think it's really an opioid come down, um, especially if you've had a C-section. So, yeah, I was going through all these emotions. I've got this beautiful baby that I adore, which I am now fully in charge of a life. And I've gone from, you know, nine months earlier being chucked out of a nightclub and being wedged down the side of a bed to being in charge of a life. And I didn't know that that change was going to be so, so difficult for me. So I did. I tried. You know, I tried really hard. I was hanging out the washing, washing. You know, I bought some really unflattering mum shorts, which is kind of what you're going to do. And I was trying to be a good mum. I was was showing the outside world, look at me. I've changed. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a brilliant mum. But the booze was just creeping up on me like a horrible little troll. It was kind of creeping up behind me with each failed parenting attempt. If the baby was crying too much, if I felt isolated, all these emotions you know, building up inside me. And I remember going out like to a mother's group meeting and one of the girls saying, why don't we go out? And I was on it, you know, <laughs> on it like a tiger. I was like, yes, I want to go out. I want to be me. And we use that expression a lot, this mummy wine culture. They say it a lot about this release, this escape. I want to be the old me. And I question, you know, is, what is being the old me? And I've realized what it is, it's booze. Being the old me means drinking. There's nothing else to it. And when mums say that, I just want a piece of the old me, it means I just want a piece of the old drunk me. And that's what I wanted because I just wanted to remember who that independent travelling girl was just for a moment not I didn't want to be standing on, you know, down the Audi aisles, you know, choosing avocados and doing all these boring mum things. I still wanted that rock and roll lifestyle, but I also wanted to have a kid. So it was a really, really hard place to be. And I went out and, you know, I did all the did all the good things during the week and then it would build up and then bad mummy would come out to play.
1: Yeah, you know, I hear you there. And when and when you saying I want to be the old me, what came up for me there? was the old me was escapism, which means booze. Uh, and yeah,
0: All we... of those words do, yeah. don't they? Yeah,
1: and when we stop, it's finding other things to give you that dopamine hit that the booze used to get. And quite often we struggle right in the beginning, don't we? Because Because you've had a lifetime of the instant hit to mm. relieve the stress and the anxiety and stuff. And you know that... Half an hour before you're going to have a drink, you're going to think, Oh, God, the instant feeling of joy when you think, Oh, I can have a drink in half an hour on whatever. And then you have that. But we know, you know, if we got a problem an hour after that, you're chasing the dragon and then you're having more and more and more. Then you get aggressive and then argumentative. And then you wake up with your face in the dog bowl. And then it starts (laughs) again the next day, you know. So when you stop drinking, how did you deal with that?
0: Well so yeah I had a second child this whole party lifestyle went on I you know I was drinking every other week going out and and anxiety started to happen again like it had in my 20s I started to feel real bad anxiety every time I was hungover I'd lay in bed with a newborn baby crying in the room beyond my hangover and I'd have to listen to my husband get on with the day without me and of course that causes massive shame and massive anxiety and guilt and all of these things but I didn't know another way of being, as I keep on saying, this was so ingrained in me that I couldn't see outside my bubble. So I was trying to moderate. I was trying to do all of these things. And still those escapisms, you know, those those needs were overwhelming to me. And then I had another child. And again, I went drinking after six weeks after she was born. And that was one hangover too many. I'd had so much stress and anxiety. I thought that I was losing my mind. I actually thought I was going to die. So that's how bad my anxiety was when I was hungover. I don't know whether you've had panic attacks before, Dave, but that's the feeling. You feel like you're going to die. You feel like you almost want to die because you cannot face a day of anxiety. It's terrible. So yeah, that's what I was feeling like every Sunday after drinking. And now that's gone. I don't have to deal with those thoughts anymore. That's what sobriety brings. It brings you a sort of freedom from all of that mental torment. I don't want to die anymore. I mean, that's a huge change for me. I I want to live and I want to be present and I want to be available for my children. One thing I talk about a lot is, you know, sobriety isn't about perfection for me. It's not about me being now a perfect parent and, and not needing a release. I still need those things that we just talked about. I still need a release. I still need an escape. You know, sometimes I do want to run down the road and shove my head in a drain and not come back but I come back and I process my feelings. I have a cup of tea and a bit of chocolate and I'm present and available to witness my successes and my failures. And that's the key to sobriety is it it is a balance. It's not all perfect. It is about being just much, much more available and present within your own life and not having to deal with the mental torment that alcohol cause. I mean, I still have you know slight subconscious cravings for chaos but they pass I sit with them I play the tape forward and I and I allow the feeling of drinking to pass through me and it's gone because those moments really were so short-lived I used to crave drink and then I'd go out have a drink and within 10 minutes you know I'd had that drink I was high and then I was in a blackout so it was pointless the whole affair was a complete pointless task because that 10 short lived minutes that I was like, yes, this is the best night of my life. It just was the, the repercussions from that were absolutely devastating on my life. So it became, you know, that builds up over a very, very long period of time to the point where you cannot do it anymore. And that's where I got to.
1: Yeah. When you were talking, I was thinking about the anxiety and uh, a lot of the anxiety that I remember is having it in my life, the drinking, do you know what I mean? It's like you think about it from the minute you get up, you think about the regret, you think about, you know, how much control it has on your life and then gradually throughout the day, get to lunchtime and the voice in your head changes the narrative, doesn't it? It says, well, okay. You're not that bad. Maybe you can mm. have one later. And then by the afternoon, you're thinking, well, just get a bottle. Yeah. And to me, that was moderating a bottle, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, but then I- by five o'clock, I'd have bought two bottles just in case and maybe three because I think, oh, it saved me going tomorrow. But deep down, I knew that I would drink the three bottles, you know. And then you wake up again. you got the anxiety coming off the alcohol. And then, you know, that was the, the main thing for me is when I stopped it was the not thinking about it was, you know, obviously the first few weeks you're thinking about it and you're biting your fingernails at times. But when I got hold of that, it was like getting rid of a, an ex that was a pain in the arse, do you know what I mean? And you've, you felt free. The freedom mm. that comes with not drinking is incredible.
0: It is just like a toxic relationship. I mean, it's like being in an abusive relationship I guess with a a partner it's like you keep allowing this thing to batter you and to to bring you down and to make you feel terrible about yourself and then you end up sort of walking over yourself and putting yourself in those situations because you feel so down, so therefore you drink through it. I mean, after those, you know, promiscuous nights I had when I was travelling, I continued that pattern because each little thing I did to myself chipped away at myself, you know, chipped away at my... But my heart, I guess, you know, it chipped away at my soul. So the worse I felt about myself, the more I did these things. It was like a sort of self-inflicted woe on repeat. It never, ever stopped. And the worse I felt, the more I did it. So it's hard to see out of that when you're in it. But what I found was, you know, I spent a lot of years trying to blame situational things, trying to, you know, go, yes, it's this. I drink when I go to this pub, so I mustn't go there or these situations cause me to drink more. But what I realized was like, I actually reached out and got therapy after I had my second child, because I realized after that hangover and having two kids in the house, I just thought I cannot do this anymore. I want to be a better mum because I was being a bit of a shit parent and my husband was left in a lurch every Sunday. So I reached out and I got help. And one of the early things I realized was, first of all, I identified the fact that I sit on that spectrum and I, I do have a problem with alcohol because that identifying that is obviously the, one of the first steps you have to do and say, this is a problem. No matter how big or small, I might not be passed out in a dumpster with a bottle of Jack Daniels. I probably have a few times, but I definitely have a problem with alcohol. Then the second thing was that I learned to take responsibility for my problem. I learned that it was always my hand reaching out for the drink. It was my hand waving a 10 quid note at the barman. It was me grabbing that bottle of Chardonnay and filling up my glass. This was my responsibility. I could have spent my whole life blaming others, but that is futile. It had to come back to me because then if you take that responsibility, it means that you can then make the changes.
1: Well, do you know what, Vic, if I was drinking now, after what you've just said there, yeah, they would really encourage me to not drink. You know, that that's brilliant. And it is all about owning it. and then, Yeah, own it. Yeah, owning it. And, and do you know what? You, you talk about, you know, the occasional time. Um, I said to my wife last night that the Euros have started last night. And I did have a bit of FOMO and I'm two and a half years sober now. And I thought, do you know what? That would give me the opportunity of a month on the lash, right? Going to various pubs. And that would mean I wouldn't care if I was on my own or not. I would wander in and out of the pubs, looking at the footy results not actually watching any of it or knowing who scored or waking up in the morning, <laughs> no, not knowing what the score was at the end of the game. Yeah. And yeah, I had a brief bit of FOMO, but then I, I did what you do and what I, I say to people is to wind it forward. And it yeah. went and, and it, I suppose my point is that it, never goes away you know it's it's always in your life but it's what you do with it and it's by taking control of that voice in your head that tells you things oh god wouldn't it be good to watch the footy with beer in your hand and that is absolutely ridiculous
0: because you're looking you're looking for that short-term high again aren't you which is you're never going to succeed at because moderation is a total myth for me as it probably is for you that little pixie that was telling me to drink on my shoulder he won every time but it's funny because like you and i i guess we sort of thought we were condemned to being binge drinkers all our lives. Um, I guess I kind of accepted my fate. You know, you can see from that diary, I had accepted my fate, even though I was trying, I didn't think I was capable of change. But it's incredible. I listened to your William Porter interview and he talked about neuroplasticity and changing the brain. I totally believe in that. I I didn't think I was capable of evolving as a human being. And that's something that's really surprised me in sobriety. You know, it is hard at first and you do feel like there's a, a light shining on you and everything feels raw and real. And you have to deal with emotions instead of block them out. But you are capable of change. And that is a really incredible feeling because that that opens up the whole world to you can just do whatever you want. And you're a perfect example of that. Like the changes that you've made since giving up drinking. It's incredible because you revert into that person you were always meant to be, your authentic self. And that's been The biggest journey, I I didn't even know that was going to happen. I don't know about you, but like, I didn't know. I thought I was just going to stop drinking. I thought that would be it and I'll stay the same. But that's not what's happened at all. I've completely changed. Like, I'm still me. I'm still a dickhead sometimes. And I still shout at my children and and an idiot. But like, (laughs) I think I'm capable of so much more. The cogs in my brain are working. I, I write, I go to boxing and I do pottery and I do all this fun stuff. I've got so much time now and I don't have that anxiety because sobriety, what it does for me, it's like all of that hatred and self-loathing and all of those horrible things that I was doing to myself, it's like they've been sitting on my chest and my shoulders for all of these years and it's like somebody's grabbed hold of them and got hold of them and just chucked them in the bin and it's like now I'm free to just do whatever I want to do and it's a really wonderful feeling.
1: God, yeah, I, I can really hear that. I mean, when I met my wife, right, she was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago as well. And we had a really intimate conversation about it. And she always said to me, there's so much more to you, Dave. There's so... And I didn't really understand what she meant because I had the weight of booze on my shoulders and it held me back so much. I mean, I trained to be a counsellor. And um, I got to level three, and unfortunately, my mum became ill and died. But I still tried to carry on. But I was doing the homework drunk, and I I, I was thinking, you know, when I sent it off, I thought, God, that's brilliant. I'm going to get top marks. And when they marked it, it was almost like, what the hell is this rubbish? You know what I mean?
0: Gibberish.
1: Yeah, because in my head, I'd written a masterpiece, but that (laughs) I didn't actually start writing it till after four pints of Peroni. And it's things like that. But when I actually stopped. And after a few weeks, I became a mental health first aid. I did a course in Park Lane, London. I've done so many things, as you say, and it feels endless now. You know, I just want to keep going. And what my message is as well for men, women of my age as well. You know, I'm 57 in July and I... Want to put it out there that it's never too late to change because it could have been easy for me to go, Do you know what? I've been drinking over 40 years now, that's who I am. Yeah, Get a load of it, but honestly it's my life and what I found out about myself is how quiet I actually am when I was always that really annoying loud bloke in the pub yeah there's another one really you know and I'm actually quite reserved really and I like that about myself
0: I think they call it imposter syndrome don't they it's that sort of introvert extrovert thing where you feel like you're extrovert because you're drunk actually but when the you know when the ethanol is sort of soaked off your skin it kind of you become somebody who's much more homely it's the Simple things that make you happy. It's just because the chaos is gone, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. The chaos is gone. And also, it frees up so much more time because you're not thinking about it. And, you know, as you said earlier about a relationship, I always relate it to being in an abusive relationship. And when at first you end that relationship, you don't know if you've done the right thing. You miss that person and whatever. But a year later on down the line, you don't even think about that person. But it might pop up every now and again. You might yeah. have a random smell walking past someone. Oh, I recognize that aftershave or perfume, whatever. Yeah. But it gives you your life back. And that that's what it's done. It certainly sounds like it's done it for you because you're doing so many things yourself. You've got your own yeah. past yourself, haven't you? And you write a lot.
0: Yeah, so I started writing a book the day I gave up drinking. I started writing a diary and that turned into my book, which is called A Thousand Wasted Sundays. I'm hoping that will be uh, released by the end of the year. Um, I do a podcast with my mate Lucy. Lucy joined, I I run a sober social network for women up where I live. So we do like, you know, meetups and stuff. Um, And I met a girl called Lucy who's from England, classic party girl like me. And what we were talking about earlier, I mean, you have to meet someone, you resonate... One of my things is, Dave, like I always say, like for me, I didn't feel like I was worthy of professional support. So I felt like my sort of drinking fell through the gaps, that grey area drinking where people don't feel like it is extreme enough to deserve help. And I think a lot of people, a lot of sober curious people sit – on that part of the spectrum where they think they can just maybe be a normal drinker one day and try and moderate. And that's where my friend Lucy was at when I met her. She just needed to meet someone that was still fun and still vibrant. That inspired her to give up drinking. She gave up, she went on a bender after she met me, but then she gave up drinking three days later. And she's eight and a half months sober now. So, me and Lucy do a podcast called Sober Awkward. And we talk all about early sobriety and about all the awkward things that come up, like sober socials and telling people and all of the stuff that comes up in that early time. And we also talk about parenting and motherhood and everything sobriety. We do it in a funny way. So, it's not a boring podcast. We laugh our heads off and we decided that sobriety needs a bit of humour in it. So, yeah, we have a really good life. I'm doing that, and I'm doing a lot of blog writing and stuff. And, yeah, I'm just yeah, doing whatever I can to to help and inspire others, really. And my message is always the same. Like, no matter how normal you think your drinking is, if it's affecting your life in a, in a negative way, then do reach out for help because you are worthy of professional support.
1: I love that, that um, your podcast is like that because, I mean, we kind of know each other we've done a live together and we've sort of connected since I became sober and I always look at you as as real fun you know you always make me smile and when I see your Instagram post it's quite clear you're happy in your own skin and that's so lovely to see you know
0: that is really the the journey isn't it that is what it is that is you've just summed up sobriety right there it is just learning to be yourself and accepting yourself and, and letting the opinions of others sort of drain out of you because it's a waste of energy. I've wasted so much of my life caring about what people thought of me and now I don't care. Yeah. It's just like a you know huge relief.
1: You said it in the beginning about I was always a people pleaser and now you're happy in your own skin. That's gone, isn't it? And of course we want to make people happy but it's sort of more normal now you know it's you just live your life as the authentic you
0: yeah and I can make people happy in other ways like you know I don't have to be downing pites in a nightclub and rolling around on the floor one of the things I used to do Dave was say come on let's do the human podium and I used to get on all fours and get people to dance on my back and I'd wake up on a Sunday morning with footprints all over me I mean you can't it's like what was i doing so things like that i don't do the human podium anymore i'm pleased to tell you
1: (laughs) well by the sounds of what you've told me you you you're very lucky to be here albeit um with half a finger missing
0: yeah, at least
1: it's not my head that got blown off. I mean, that could have happened as well. <laughs> I mean, it taught you resilience. I know that. And uh, I'm so grateful that you joined me today. And do you know what? Your podcast is now rounding off my season one. There's been eight amazing guests, including yourself, and I've really enjoyed it. And the ironic thing is that it was only probably four months ago that my wife came out of the bathroom and she said to me, oh, I think I might do a podcast. And I said, I'd do one as well then and literally <laughs> on that i've banged out eight podcasts and i've loved every single moment it's been a real joy to do
0: it's a sense of freedom in it isn't it in the podcasting because really there's no control so you haven't got anyone peering over your shoulder saying you can't say this you can't say that and it's just like it's just a natural organic feel to it doesn't it it's so nice Thank you for having me on your being your on your eighth episode. I I feel truly honoured, Dave.
1: Well, I wanted you on because you're really refreshing to talk to, and I can really relate to you as well because you're the kind of person I think that I would have been drunk in a pub with, and you would have walked <laughs> in. And I've gone ah, fix it, brilliant, because I think we're actually quite similar. But so I similar. Relate to you in your sobriety as well.
0: I just wanted to ask you a question, Dave. If that's all right. How do you feel about um, when people say to you, what sort of drinker are you? Like, uh, are you a grey area? Are you fed up of explaining yourself now? Because I'm getting a bit fed up of explaining where I sit on this spectrum and all that thing. I, I was just wondering what you say.
1: Well, I was never a grey area drinker. I, I would drink every single day to oblivion for, for years and years. And I'm just honest about that. I tell them that and I just say it. I realised that it no longer served me on many, many levels, and I had to give up. Otherwise, I'd be dead by now. And I'm, I'm just, I don't, I don't dilly dally around it. Yeah. I honestly don't think I would be here. I think my health was so bad when I gave up. The doctor said my blood pressure was critically, you know, I could have had a heart attack at any moment. Yeah, right. My weight was really ridiculously high. And I just tell him that I can never drink again because uh, I was never a take or leave it drinker.
0: Yeah, you can't argue with that, I guess. You can't argue with someone saying like, well, I felt like drinking was going to cause me to die. Maybe I need to say that.
1: Well, no, <laughs> oh, I, that do, I do because yeah. that's how it was. I don't, yeah. I, I'm not ashamed of the fact that um, I drank to the extent I did now. You know, when I explain it now, I was ashamed then because, I, you know, I didn't want people to know the extent of it, you know, hiding wine in the bedroom. You know, there's times now I I might clear a drawer out and there's little miniatures in the sock drawer or or somewhere, you know, and and it's like, oh, my God. Um, And I look at pictures of when I was drinking and I I look in my eyes and and I just want to hug that man because I feel Mm. so upset for that man, you know, because of the yeah. inner turmoil that I was going through. And so I never, ever beat around the bush when I talk about the extent of my drinking. Because in a way, I want to inspire others to relate to that and think, Do you know what, that's how I feel, but I've never been able to relate it to anyone. And yeah, it's sad. It's, yeah. yeah, if that conversation can maybe get someone else thinking about their own drinking then that's the start, isn't it?
0: Yeah, definitely. It's just about being honest, I guess, isn't it? Just being honest and people can't argue with honesty, can they?
1: Well, I felt like then I was on your podcast.
0: Yeah, sorry. I just was interested to know I'm just a bit nosy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, look, it's been absolutely amazing seeing you. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. And uh, Thank you, Dave. Let's chat soon. Yeah, take care, mate. All right. Thank you Have so much, Vic. Thanks, Dave. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at Sober or drop me an email at info at so I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week and take
0: care.